Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. We are in the book of Matthew. I'd ask that you stand with me and turn in your Bibles where you can follow along on the screen to Matthew chapter 10. Ah, chapter 9, rather. I'm getting ahead of myself. Chapter 9, verses 18 through 31. Matthew 9, 18 through 31. This is the word of God. While he, being Jesus, was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once, the woman was made well. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw flute players and a noisy crowd in disorder, he said, Leave, for the girl is not dead, but is asleep. And they began, to laugh, they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand. And the girl got up. And this news spread throughout all that land. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had entered the house, the blind men came up to him and said to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all the land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Please be seated as we pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word, and we pray now that as we look into it, our hearts might be made soft, and that your Holy Spirit would work in us according to your good pleasure, Father. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. This morning, we are going to take a look at each of the people individually listed in the passage we just read, Matthew 9. We're going to take a look at these different people and what ties their stories together and what ties them to us today. That's our objective. That's what we're going to try and do this morning. We're going to start with the synagogue official. He's the, he's the first one, as Jesus was saying these things to him, a synagogue official came. This first person is given to us, his name is given to us in the other Gospels. His name is Jairus. Matthew doesn't bother giving us his name, but only gives us his title, indicating something about his place within the society in which they lived. Jairus was a synagogue official. Well, what's that mean? We've all heard that. We know, we've heard the term synagogue, temple, tabernacle. What is a synagogue official? Well, this, the Greek word for synagogue means assembly. And it comes from the Greek, the, the, the Greek word that is similar means congregation or the community of Israel. So synagogues were places where the Jews would gather for worship. They would gather to study. They'd gather to pray together. It's not to be confused for the temple. 
We've grown up maybe in church or maybe we haven't grown up in church and these might be new terms to us, but if we've grown up in church, we hear temple and synagogue. We need to make the distinction in our mind. There's one temple and that's in Jerusalem. Then there are synagogues and those synagogues are in the towns and villages and smaller cities around. These were gathering places for the people of Israel to come, to hear, to read, sometimes to to pray and to, to preach little sermons. Jesus, at various times, went to the temple. We can read about that in the gospel accounts. Various times he was called, called his disciples to come up with him to Jerusalem. But he, is, he and his apostles were often found in the synagogues. Jesus spent a lot of time there in Matthew 4. He's there. He taught in them in Matthew 13. He healed in them in Luke 4 and in Mark 3. He debated interpretations with the Pharisees in John 6. He clearly belonged to the community of the synagogue because when he visits Nazareth Nazareth in Luke 4, it seems as if he was scheduled to read. Synagogues were at the center of Jewish society. A synagogue official, a synagogue ruler, was a man in charge of, one, maintaining that area, that ground, those buildings, maintaining it, keeping it up to snuff, as well as organizing and overseeing all of the services that would happen, not just on the Sabbath, on the weekend, but there were things that were happening every day. So this man was responsible for overseeing all those things and making sure they happened properly and in good order. Jairus' work is central in the religious life of the people, of, of the Jewish people. Matthew includes this title because he wants us to understand who the man is that's coming to Jesus. And it's also interesting how he comes. We're told that he doesn't just come with an entreaty. He doesn't just blurt out his need. The verse says that he bows himself to the ground. He throws himself down at the feet of Jesus in worship, in an act of adoration, and then says, my daughter has died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will be well. Despite all the scorn and the ridicule that Jesus has started to earn among the religious elite, the religious leaders of the Jewish community, this man is drawn to Jesus. There is a pull of faith in his heart that causes him to seek Jesus out and to fall before him in worship and to beg him to come and raise his daughter from death to life. He is desperate for his daughter's life. He is desperate for her life, and in the face of her death, he turns to Christ as his only hope, despite the backlash he is going to receive from those he works for and those he works around. He's going to be considered a traitor, the one who succumbed to that heretic. In a passage coming up very soon, we know that Jesus is going to be accused of being uh, aligned with Satan by the Pharisees. This desperate fool entreated someone with demonic power to heal his daughter. He doesn't truly honor God in the face of trial. These are the types of things that Jairus is going to encounter because of his act of going to Jesus for his daughter's life. Against great odds, a man that is a respected leader in the Jewish community is trading teams. He's putting his faith in Jesus, the Son of God. And of course, it's preposterous and shameful and wrong to continue to apply medication after someone has died. It's just shameful. It should never happen. Unless, of course, the one you're going to is the physician after death. Unless you're calling upon Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. So Jesus begins following Jairus to his home. 
And along the way, another situation develops. We find ourselves introduced to a woman this time. It says, verse 20, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. There are some obvious contrasts between Jairus, this synagogue official, and this woman. The first is that Jairus is a man and she's a woman. Uh, This is obvious, but one of the things that you also realize is that um, Jairus' position was only open to men. It wasn't open to women. Women could not read in the temple. Uh, They could not do anything, rather I said temple, in the synagogue, uh, let alone lead that, let alone a woman that actually is unclean. It isn't arbitrary that these two characters are sandwiched right next to each other in the passage. Uh, First up, it's a respected leader in the town. Second, it's a lady who lives each and every day with a burden, uh, an inconvenience, a stigma of perpetually being unclean. And I'm using this word unclean. I'm referencing a term that isn't my own. It's a term that God applies to men and women under various circumstances uh, in the Old Testament. In the book of Leviticus, specifically chapters 11 through 15, um, those chapters outline what sort of acts or conditions render a person unclean. God gives instructions how someone might go out being cleansed after a time of uncleanness. Now, all the people of Israel would be at clean, unclean at one time or another. This was, this was not uncommon. This was a part of being God's people. You couldn't go before God unclean. He's holy And being unclean is a part of life. And so these chapters in Leviticus detail how one might clean themselves. But she's perpetually unclean. Leviticus chapter 15 actually speaks to her condition precisely when it says this. I'll just read a few verses from there. Now, if a woman has a discharge of blood many days, not at the period of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond that point, all the days of her impure discharge shall continue as though in her menstrual impurity she is unclean. So any bed she touches, it's unclean. Anywhere she sits is unclean. Whoever touches them, their garments are unclean, and they shall be unclean until evening. They can't do anything until evening. They'll have to wash and go through a series of steps. Thus you shall keep all the sons of Israel separated from their uncleanness, and here's the point, so that they will not die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is among them. That's God speaking. Those are God's words. And those that are unclean cannot come into his presence. They can't be in his sight. Think about the implications of this woman's illness. Think about the constant strain that this would put on her life. Think about people going out of their way to avoid her so that they won't touch her. She's a walking, talking impediment to your plans. You bump into this lady on the street, bam, your evening plans are gone. Your barbecue is not happening. Your neighbors are not coming over. This is just this is the reality of what's, what's going on here. We think wearing a mask is inconvenient, don't we? This lady's condition teaches us to be slow to complain. If we continue in our passage, we bump into our, our third set of characters. Uh, we see that Jesus visits the synagogue official's home. 
And when he's done there, he leaves and is quickly intercepted by a third group, a couple of blind men. And our passage say that these two men followed after Jesus, crying out, what they say? Have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. These guys fascinate me because I think of the three that Jesus interacts with, uh, these seem the most to be pitied. Whereas the woman could, could conceal her condition uh, from those on the street, these guys are helpless, absolutely helpless. They're at the mercy of those around them. We aren't told any specifics. I mean, the, Matthew is, is brief. If you notice, as we've been going through Matthew, um, his stories are a lot more brief. They, they contain a lot less detail than the other Gospels. But we don't know. It's not outlined what these men's lives were like. But we do know, if we're students of Scripture, if we read through the Gospels, that, that those that were crippled and blind and lame and deformed, we know that their lives were not easy. We know that people generally didn't want to have to deal with them, right? We, it comes through in stories like the Good Samaritan and, and other places, the pool, Bethsaida, right? And the, and the, we, we get the sense that these are the downtrodden of society, those that nobody really wants to help. And on top of that, I think a few weeks ago we already talked about the fact that if somebody was born with some sort of condition or if they became ill with some condition, the general consensus in Jewish society was that they had done something that warranted that condition as a punishment. Maybe not them, but at least their, their parents, right? The disciples say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? And so these guys are really pitiable souls. They're blind they're at the mercy of others to lead them where they want to go, or they have to grope with their hands. And they're there calling after Jesus, have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. It's interesting. You know, we, I'm not going to go into it, but what they cry is absolutely incredible because in some ways they're the most, uh, well, they haven't been able to see any of Jesus' miracles, have they? Everything they know about this Christ has come from their ears. Everything they know about Jesus has not been based off sight, but off hearing and knowing the Old Testament and belief. Blessed are those who do not see and believe. So these are these men. These are these men. Now we've acquainted ourselves with each of these three categories of people, um, and now that we've done so, I want to point out, and we're going to continue to point out ways in which they're actually alike. We've talked about their distinctions, their different roles in society, the way each of these three different people would sort of be viewed. If you didn't know them and you were just walking by on the street, you saw each three of these people and you'd have different preconceived notions come into your head. Now I want to draw us in and focus on how they are alike, how they are related despite their social positions, despite their immediate circumstances. And the first way that they're all related is this. They all have a need. That's obvious. 
They all have a need. That's why Jesus is writing about them. I'm not talking about any sort of petty need. A couple weeks ago, we were uh, on vacation, and we had just finished a big family dinner. We're all sitting around the living room, and we've stuffed ourselves on my mom's cooking, and we've got a corner cabinet full of chocolate animal crackers and, and white animal crackers and granola bars and snacks. I mean, the thing is filled. And what do we have a need for? We have a need. All the men are sitting around in their circle complaining about this need. We have a need for Five Guys milkshakes, right? And so we go and we drive 30 minutes to get bacon and chocolate milkshakes or whatever they are. Now listen, that need was not a need. That need was just a frivolous desire that we allowed ourselves to act on because we were on vacation, right? These people have a need. Their need is real. It's visceral. It's massive. It's not a frivolous desire. It's not something extra that they're after. Their condition has brought them to the edge of despair. Without Jesus' help, there is no hope for these people. That's the sort of need we're dealing with here. The leader of the synagogue's daughter has died. She's died. The woman with the issue of blood has spent every penny she has seeking a remedy. That's what the accountant Mark and Luke tell us. Every penny that this woman owns has gone toward seeking healing and every doctor that she's gone to has taken her money but they haven't given her anything that helps her body. In fact, we're told that it's gotten worse. The bleeding is worse after a period of 12 years than it was on day one. These two blind men have been blind for a long time, perhaps since birth. And they live like men and women used to live for a momentary period of time in the stocks here in America. When you do something that was wrong or shameful or you got drunk and were a rabble-rouser outside the saloon, you'd be put outside on display. People would look at you and know, I don't know what they did, but they did something wrong. That's the condition that these men were living under. For as different as these people would appear, if you saw them on the street, they all had this need, this great need. They had this need. And the reality is that, friends, today we are tied to them just like they were tied to each other. We have a need. Perhaps we don't share their circumstances exactly, but we all have a need for the mercy and the healing that only Jesus can provide. We are connected to the people in this passage because we too... We too, listen, we too are under the sting of sin. We are all under the sting of sin. Some of the pains in life that we experience come from sin generally in the world. This pain isn't the result of any specific sin or action that we may have taken. It isn't a consequence for something foolish or wrong that we may have done. It's the pain and sorrow of living in a fallen, broken, sinful world. And so this morning we lament with, with Martha and Carol in the loss of, 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 of a mother and a husband. We will lament with the Doherty's in the loss of a child. We, we have friends that have lost jobs recently. This week I had a friend call me and say that his employer had just sent out an all-company communication saying that 30 jobs out of, you know, a couple hundred were being cut, terminated due to the financial strain and a lack of work. 
And thankfully, praise God, after, you know, hours of waiting for an email to see if he was one of the selected ones, he was told that he still had his job. But those hours of waiting were hours of turmoil and distress and pain and fear for him. All these type of things happen when you walk to the beach and you stub your toe. Even something that little is the result generally of sin in this world. So in a general sense, sin causes pain and suffering that we all feel. But it's not just general effects of sin on the world that we feel. It's also our own personal sins that in the end cause us anger and hurt and pain and a need. And you know this is true. You know it's true. Some of you are sitting here right now and you are wrestling with the pain of your sins. You can name them. You can think of particular instances in your life where you've decided to do something or not do something that have caused you pain. Like the people in our passage, sin causes us to have a great need. And it's a great need because the Bible says this. The Bible says that the end result of sin is death. That's why it's such a great need. The end result of sin is death. But death is the end result. It really is. And there are many things that come before death that can either serve as wake-up calls to us from the Lord or, or just grievous annoyances in our life if we have hard hearts. Things like, things like suffering and broken friendships. Things like divorce. Things like hatred, oppression, pride, STDs, lack of trust, rebellion, fighting, the silent treatment, anxiety, Depression, doubt, all of these things exist because of sin. You and I are sinners. We have a great need. So first, they have a need. Second, what do they do? They pursue Jesus Christ. Their need causes desperation. And that desperation causes them to seek Jesus, to pursue him. This is called faith. Pursuing Jesus Christ out of desperation is faith. Pursuing Jesus Christ because he's your only hope is faith. The reality is that just because we have a great need does not mean that all of us pursue the right course of remedy. We don't all act like the men and women of this passage. The world is full of people that have a great need And they might even be willing to admit that, but they're trying to fix that in the wrong way. An example, it was alluded to by my dad in the pastoral prayer. You take the racial climate in America today. All of us can see that sin has caused great need, great distress, anger, division, hatred. So what's the solution? Paying reparations? Better education? New legislations enforcing racial equality training? Repenting of whiteness? Defunding police or, or ignoring what's going on and hoping that it just goes away, that we don't have to hear about it anymore, claiming that it's overblown and doesn't really matter, turning a blind eye to the ways, the real ways in which black people in this country have been exploited over the years. These are all remedies that people are holding up. You can go online and you can print and bring me an article that will say that here's the need and here's the solution to that need regarding this specific issue, this current issue in the country in which we live. Now, some of these things could play a part in the remedy. I don't deny that. 
But if they are looked to as the remedy, if they are pointed to as the source of fixing the problem, we aren't going to see any solution. We are going to have more hatred, more anger, more resentment. Nothing will change. We'll be like the woman who spent all her money for 12 years seeking an earthly remedy, and it's worse at the end than it was at the beginning. What's going on in America today is the result of sin. White sin, black sin, our sin, all of our sin. The needs we face are sin-induced, and therefore the only one who can really heal, really forgive, really change desires, really soften hearts is the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot solve these things without him. They will never be solved without him at the center of them, at the center of the solution, at the center of the remedy. We need the power of God. But oh, we try, don't we? We are always trying to find a way to fix our own problems and our own needs. We are always trying to fill that hole that needs plugged our own way. You look for all sorts of fixes to your problems. You try all sorts of remedies before you run to Jesus and cry out for mercy. How many of us have done that over the last six months? You look to other people's affirmation. Yeah, I know I'm a mess, but if I can, if, if, if he or she thinks I'm good, I think that'll fix it. I think I can live with a, a conscience that feels good about myself if they're happy with me. Or if they give me attention. Some people chronically go through life doing things that mess their life up, that, that excite their need just because they're looking for attention as the solution. And that's really wrong unless you're seeking the attention of Christ. It's so wrong. It's never going to fix you. It's never going to fill you. It's only going to lead you to darker and darker places. Some of us try and fix our need by just being better than the person next to us. And so we never actually come to Christ. We're content to just be standing near somebody that's a little uglier than we are. Sometimes we can try and plaster over our pain using entertainment or money or and these things are so sort of stereotypical to mention but they're all real drugs you know how many people are dying every day due to trying to fix their needs with a needle and it may or may not be someone in this room doing that but we look to sex we look to money we look to entertainment we look to medication whether it's prescribed or whether we get it on our own. These things will not help. Or sometimes we have this need and we choose to run away. We, choose, we, we, we say to ourselves, if actually if I can just get myself, I know I'm a hot mess, but if I, can, if I can remove myself from my current situation, if I can take myself out of sight of those that are around me, they aren't going to see my shame, and that might fix my problem. But you know what? The problem with that is God sees it all. And it's not you or I that needs to be concerned 
with, with being seen by other people. We need to be concerned, rather, with, see, with God seeing us. His eyes roam the earth. He is omnipresent. There's no height or depth that we can run to to hide our needs from God. We don't ever fix our problems by just removing ourselves from a certain group of people, a certain uh, job, a certain church, a certain group, set of surroundings. That never fixes the problem. But these are all ways in which we try. There are many ways which we try to deal with our problems, but there is only one way, only one way that ultimately works, and that is to seek Jesus Christ. That is the only lasting, true, real, indestructible solution. Imitate the blind men who have no other recourse but to call out, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Pursue him with desperation. Pursue him with desperation. We've all likely experienced times of desperation in our lives. Maybe you can think of a time where the typical hold, like we feel we have on our existence and our immediate circumstances, comes crashing down and we feel helpless. This happened to me just a couple years ago. We were, again, up in Glen Arbor, and uh, it was just my family and I, and I, I may have mentioned this to some of you. We were at a playground, and I was on a teeter totter with my son, and I thought I was going to be a fun dad and give him a real ride, and I propelled him way further into the air with my force than I thought I was going to do. And he came down, and his neck hit a metal bar. He landed on his neck on a metal bar, and I was desperate for help. I mean, Steve Wing, you probably remember what I sounded like on the phone that day. I was desperate because he was fainting, and his eyes were rolling back in his head. These are not things that a father is accustomed to. These might be things that Steve sees every week in the ER, when he's working. But these are not things I'm accustomed to. Boys don't just faint. I don't know if he's breathing, not breathing. I've, I'm not a Boy Scout. I don't know. CPR, all that stuff. I am in the, I'm an hour from Traverse City, which is the nearest city of, with any sort of hospital, and I am desperate to call Steve. And I don't know if he's breathing. I don't know if he's going to stop breathing. I don't know if, how, how much an impact like that can hurt someone. I was absolutely desperate and that situation was really unpleasant. It rocked me. But it gave me a clear, clarity that's typically shrouded by my pride. My pride normally is so stuffy it gets in the way. It made me realize how self-reliant I typically am and how foolish and deceptive all those notions are. How something so simple as me playing on, the, on, a, on a teeter-totter with my son can put me in a totally helpless situation where I'm desperate for help. And I'm desperate that Steve pick up his phone. Thank you, by the way. It's a gift of God each time he puts us in front of a situational mirror, so to speak, that reflects who we are and how helpless we are without him. And, and that's the mirror that each one of the people in our passage were staring right into on this day. This brings us to our third, our third thing that each of these people have in common. First, they have a need. Second, they pursue Christ as, as the remedy to that need. And third, they all look foolish in their pursuit of Jesus, don't they? They all look foolish. Remember that when Jesus gets to the synagogue ruler's house, what happens? Well, there's people there already, and it's all a noisy disorder. There's probably the loud lamentations and wailings that you would expect and would be appropriate in any house. And what's going on with the flute players? I don't actually know. I read very, very different things on that, and I came away with no absolute clarity as to what those people were doing playing flutes in that house. But anyway, the connotation is that it's very busy and bustling and probably not very... Uh, not the right climate for people that have just lost a daughter. 
And Jesus asks where this girl is, and they lead him to that girl, and they say, she's dead. She's dead. Can't he see that? Jairus, can't you see? Why are you making this harder on all of us? Can't you just admit what's clearly laying out in front of you? And Jesus says, no, 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 that girl's not dead, she's merely sleeping. This is not the only time Jesus says this, remember. He said this before. She's just sleeping. She's asleep. And what's their response? Laughter, right? I heard it. Laughter. They laugh at Jesus. And their laughter is aimed at Jesus, but make no mistake about it. It's clear that the laughter that's aimed at Jesus also is a judgment on Jairus, who went and brought Jesus to the house knowing her condition and is asked Jesus to heal her. The laughter is aimed at most directly at Christ, saying she's not dead, she's just asleep. But that laughter is haunting Jairus as well. On top of that, he also is going to incur the scourge of the religious community. Their indignation for placing his trust in Christ. We've already talked about that. Now, on top of that, people in his own house think he's crazy. Maybe even some of his own family members. Likewise, the woman. The woman touching Jesus runs the risk of being deemed foolish for contaminating him. The issue she's dealt with, that God has dealt to her to bear, is a personal issue. It's a sensitive issue. And it'd be embarrassing to broadcast it at any level. Remember, if you're familiar with the other Gospels again, Jesus turns and feels, having felt power go out from him, he asks, who touched me? And it's an abbreviated story in the, our passage. And, and no one speaks up and he says, who touched me? And his disciples say, Lord, we're in the middle of the city street. Lots of people touched you. And he says, no, somebody touched me. And we're told that after a while, this woman comes to Jesus and she's trembling. That's the word. She's trembling before Christ. That's her condition in this moment. She's afraid. She's afraid that Jesus might be angry. She's maybe afraid of what those around her are going to think of her for having intentionally touched this, this, this teacher that's walking around in the street. Finally, if we look at the account of the blind men, we can imagine the reaction of those watching that spectacle They're calling out, have mercy on us. And it would be a pitiable sight just to see that happen. But but pay attention to what happens. If you read carefully, you notice something. What do you notice? They cry out, have mercy on us, son of David. And he turns around and heals them. No, it doesn't say that. They're crying out, have mercy Jesus, the text says, let's read it together. Verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. What does that mean? That means that Jesus did not stop while he walked through the city to deal with these men that were calling out to him. That can seem cruel to us. It wasn't cruel. God was testing them. He wanted to see the quality of their faith. He wanted to see if their faith would cause them to keep following with their bodies as well as when he says, 
do you believe that I can do it? And they say, yes, Lord. He wants to see that their, their actions match what they say they believe. He doesn't stop. So you can imagine this scene. It's bad enough to have to call out for mercy in the streets, but then these two blind guys are following this, this teacher and his train, wailing, have mercy on us, son of David, have mercy on us. It's, it would be embarrassing to be around. Surely those that were around shook their heads. They all looked foolish in their pursuit of Jesus, but that did not stop them. I want to ask you this. Are you willing to give up your dignity for the sake of being healed by Christ? Are you willing to give up your dignity to run after Christ calling out, have mercy on me, son of David, have mercy on me? Or are you too concerned about what other people think? Does their opinion hold you back? Listen, I I know that some of you have issues in your life that would be embarrassing if others knew about it. We all have sins that we're okay with sharing, little things that we think that everyone deals with, and so we're willing to talk about them, and we're willing to confess them in a way that we, is different than some of our more dark, embarrassing sins, the sins that are really going to try and kill us. Some of you are in marriages right now where you are not sleeping in the room that your spouse is sleeping in. Some of you have just gotten married and it's a time where it should be this happy, blissful, yay, everything is wonderful. And it's not. There's fighting. There's arguing. There's pain. Some of you are turning to the wrong things in this time where we're more isolated. Some of you are going to your wine at night. Some of you are binge-watching things that you'd be embarrassed if the person at the end of the row knew about. Some of you are angry. You're sitting here this morning with resentment towards someone else in this room, a brother or a sister in Christ. And that resentment, you're holding on to it even as it eats your arm, but you're not letting go. Some of you are in the downward spiral of immorality and you just keep seeking sinking deeper and deeper. What are you going to do? Is there any desperation to find relief in you? Is there any desperation? Do you know what you're dealing with? Do you know that sin causes death and all sorts of horrible other things before death? Or are you willing to run after Christ and cry out, have mercy on me, a sinner? Are you willing to give up your dignity for the sake of being healed, being restored, being freed? Those in our passage had a need. They pursued Christ. They are not halted by embarrassment. They are not halted by the thought of being considered foolish. And the fourth and the final thing I want to say this morning is they each received the thing that they most desperately desired. We all have many things we desire, and some of them are more important than others. And we all will give an account for how we prioritize those desires. Is being at peace with God, being healed, being forgiven, being restored, being right in His sight, your ultimate desire? Because He will grant it. He will grant it. 
His synagogue ruler's daughter was raised from death. The woman felt in her body that she was healed. What a beautiful thing. These blind men receive their sight. Perhaps for the first time, they look in another image of God. For the first time, they can look in another person who bears Christ's image. What a wonderful thing. The question is, do you believe that Jesus can do the same thing in your life? Do you believe that he has the power to turn impossible situations around? Do you believe that he can heal disease and mend relationships and overcome addictions and doubt and daddy issues and marriages that are worn thin and rebellious teenagers and every other possible belief, need rather? He can. He can. Pursue him. It's why he's given you this passage this morning. The word is not dead. It's living and inactive. It knows our hearts. He knows our needs. Hear his voice this morning. Don't try to solve your issues on your own. And don't give up. Hear me. Don't give up because you've already tried to fix them on your own and you keep failing. That's depressing. But don't give up. Go to him. Pursue him. Stop at nothing until you receive his help. Pursue Christ. And I would say this as a last thought. Don't pursue him in words alone. We all like that idea. We're just going to cough up a little prayer to him. No. Think about what these people did. They pursued him. These blind men, they call after him and he doesn't reply right away. And so what do they do? They start feeling around and following after until they have obtained his hearing and until they have obtained his healing. I want to close just by reading these words. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith, and their eyes were opened. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your power. We thank you for the promise that you have given us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ to heal hearts that are desperately sick and in need. Father, we confess that each of us has these areas in our lives, and we pray that you would would heal us. Have mercy on us, Son of David. Son of David, the great one to come, the prophesied Messiah, have mercy on us. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.